0: Welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Materials People. I am your host, Catherine Madoa and I am a mixy material science engineer. Um, Today, I am joined. Emma is a textile researcher, e-textile designer, sustainable textile innovator, and freelance print and textile designer. She is a recent graduate at the Royal College of Arts MA Textile Program, and a finalist in the RCA's um, Terra Carta Design Lab for her project Homegrown. Very exciting. And Sophia... Is a PhD student at Yale University. She is a NASA Space Technology uh, Research Fellow, a graduate NASA Space Technology Research Fellow, and her research has spanned such things as nanomaterials, drug delivery, muscle-inspired polydopamine adhesives, and stimuli-responsive actuators, which she's working on now for soft robotics. Very, very exciting, interesting stuff. I'm very excited right now. Let's just open the floor and hear their stories. Who would like to start? Let's. How How did you get to this point, guys?
0: Thank you for that really lovely introduction, Catherine. That was very eloquent of you. <laughs> and Lovely to meet everyone out there in the virtual world, I guess. Um, so, yeah, oh, my story is really, um, I guess, like, a, a interesting. Is it interesting? I'm not sure. But, yeah, so I started um, on my BA. I studied fashion and print design. So I always, um, I originally studied um Physics, biology, and chemistry at sort of high school A level, which you have in the UK. And I wanted to do marine biology, but I never really liked the sort of BA systematic approach that we have. So, BSc um, in the UK, where you kind of enter something and you teach everything, and it's just kind of spit you out. It's like a very binary process to the whole side of it. So, I was always looking for, okay, hand painted and drawn at home, and what can I do that doesn't necessarily mean fine art, but has a bit more of a business scope. So fashion just naturally lended itself to that um and I started my first job I was quite lucky outside of my BA at Versace so I just moved to Italy and I worked there for a few years as a print designer on their interiors and mainline couture, couture collection which is very interesting um it was amazing and I came back to London and I worked for different various brands and freelance since then but it was amazing but it kind of reached its roof this peak really quickly um and I just needed more from it. So it was either going kind to of turn into a very senior role and then just very, I found but made potentially quite repetitive, or there was a space I really wanted to explore in regards to sustainability and not just necessarily corporate sustainability, but what can that be more in regards of like care and how can we be disruptive in the way we approach what sustainability is at the moment and what it was at the time. And is there a way that textiles can kind of lend itself as a tool within that, obviously, without sort of debunking textiles as it is a sustainable problem? So yeah, then I found soft systems, RCA, and, um, a few people suggested RCA, um, Lauren Balco at the Unseen and Matthew Drinkwater, um, LCA was LCF, sorry, was really, really like just jump on RCA. It's a really great space, um, just for innovation you get to mix courses and you don't stay within your your unit as it were there's a really great space to innovate so yeah I just found that like, my first year I just went a bit wild and then I just always loved the idea of technology and textiles but have that bio interpretation within it um and I think my first year I just explored so many different paths and came to a really nice sort of conclusion that bio-based technologies was something I've always loved and how can we actually incorporate As much natural local resources as we can within an e-product, um, without compromising its performance. And then how can we take the idea of caring for that product as a, not necessarily equal, but breaking down that hierarchy idea of an object and abusing that object? Um, it's just another hard thing that you use in your house. How can we have that sort of emotional relationship and understanding who made that? The farmers who cared for that produce and, you know, not so produce, but materials that it's made from. And OK, yes, it's broken. How can we repair it? And where's its next life going to be? And kind of really trying to disrupt that idea of consume, new, consume. So, yes, that's kind of where I am at now. I work for two different research companies. I work for an e-textile straight rehabilitation company called knit regen and I also work at Viserion slash RCA as a graphene print researcher and then homegrown and then I freelance in between <laughs> <laughs> so I like to be really busy um I've also collaborated with the BIT which is a Bioinspired textile research group at um UAL and looking at um how hemp and the characteristics of hemp could potentially be used in soft robotics a nice eclectic range of things so yeah
1: Ta-da. <laughs> ah, fantastic. And Sophia, please tell us about your journey.
2: Well, one, it was very interesting to hear everything you said, Emma, I already have so many things that I want to talk to you about. Um, so I'm really excited and I want to make my introduction quick um, so we can move on. Um, but yeah, I did my undergrad with Catherine at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I did my bachelor's in biomedical and materials engineering. And I worked a lot in the kind of field of like drug delivery and biomaterials. So how do we synthesize materials that are able to be essentially implanted into your body without making any harmful effects? Um, so what we consider to be biocompatible materials. And from there I looked, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to go to graduate school and get my PhD. Um, Cause that was just something my parents drilled into me since I was in middle school. Um, but I, Applied to many schools, but I only applied for materials engineering, even though my re- research interest was really in biomedical engineering, um, which is not a smart thing to do because that doesn't lend itself to finding the uh, optimal labs. But in the end, I found myself here at Yale working with Professor kramer Um, and we do soft robotics research. Um, and I particularly chose this field because at one point I just realized sometimes it's good to like venture beyond just the be very... Specific field of biomaterials and drug delivery research. And from there, I found myself working on the material science side of soft robotics. So I'm particularly interested in stimuli responsive materials, which I'm sure we all kind of know a little bit about, but basically a material that is able to change shape or change really any kind of material property that we can detect based on a certain environmental stimuli. And in this case, I use thermo responsive materials. So materials that change shape. Change volume in response to um, temperature. So that's what I what I do right now. And yeah, the work uh, is working with NASA on making these actuators specifically for space applications. But yeah, right now I kind of like have my project. I'm just developing it until I graduate, and then I have no idea what I'm going to do.
1: That's all I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's very fair. That's very fair. Um, I think it's it's interesting seeing the the different ways that both of your paths have kind of led themselves to this mutually like nebulous place, you know, I I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this whole space of the kind of e-textiles, soft materials, functional materials, similar response, like it's, it's a whole field that everyone's always kind of excited about and talking about, but when it comes to finding the right application or finding where you fit in that space, it can feel really um, difficult and I, I find it quite interesting how on one hand there is a kind of this the PhD route you kind of focus on the, the like the long-term project and then there's also the route of kind of trying lots of different projects to see like kind of carve your way into the space and, I, and I'm curious how have you found it like finding this niche for yourself how have you found it developing I guess your language or your material of choice in this space
2: yeah so originally like joining the soft robotics field was actually really something that I struggled with a lot. And I think a lot of it is just growing pains after moving on from college and into your like graduate degree, or just like leaving a huge, you know, kind of like section of your life and moving on to the next chapter was really challenging. Uh, But I really struggled with the soft robotics field just because um, I'm very like human health oriented and like bio oriented and my kind of fulfillment was making sure that I was putting something out there that could be helpful for humans and in turn like since I work on such small you know molecular level kind of things I didn't really see that in the soft robotics field but moving forward you know we've um, worked a lot on you know in integrating actuation into robotic skins which could be used for a variety of different applications including rehabilitation and soon hopefully prosthetics or integrating into prosthetics to make it um more user wearable and things like that. But yeah, I, I really struggled and um it only really took until I applied to fellowships and had to kind of like orient my work in a way that was sellable for um an agency that I realized that hey, like it is actually um fulfilling to a certain degree and I, I do enjoy it. Um but yeah I it's it's definitely like a very weird situation to be in. Because I think it it does bring a range of personalities and different backgrounds. And that's really fun. But at the same time, sometimes it's hard to figure out how to mesh those together to make something that's super cool or super unique, if that makes any sense.
0: yeah, Mm, Really interesting. Yeah, because in my head, it's the research area is the really cool space. Like you don't have any commercial limitations unless it's like, I guess like sponsored by certain people and you've got certain stakeholders, um, et cetera. But I've always seen that as like, like your MA and, or your MSD, you can, your world is your oyster almost, but there is still in a way you still need to pitch yourself and you still need to work within a field. Um, so yeah, so no, I, I did think about, um, going into a PhD, but I think for me, I wanted to see how the real world of research and those applications worked. And I'm always, naturally draw more to a commercial context than just pure research but then um, it's a tricky one because then a lot of really great research require a phd just because of the knowledge you gain through that and the experience you gain through that so um i don't know if it's pure research i'm looking for either is it really yeah it's really yeah. <laughs> Hold on the moment so for me just trying out lots of different things actually added to my skill set and i've always enjoyed working with like a range of personalities and deliverables so that's actually naturally honed into my personal work something okay right this and a little bit of that and that somewhere and actually it's ended up being a bit of like a, a montage of experiences mm-hmm. rolled into one so that's been really helpful however the PhD is definitely not off the cards I think um I am very intrigued by that um so yeah I'm just kind of fleshing that out at the moment but I think I'm still naturally inclined to research within the commercialized space R&D space product development Maybe it's just like the pace of it. Obviously, commercial can be a lot faster and PhD is a lot naturally a bit slower, um, which is the beautiful thing about it. So maybe it's my personality type. <laughs> I don't know. It is tricky. I think I found I've had to like flesh out a bit of my own job title. So I'm still working on that, <laughs> as you can see on LinkedIn. Um, but it is it is really hard because you know what you want. When I came out of my BA, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and exactly who to hit. To get a the job I wanted, and it worked. And this time around it's like, okay, what exactly do I want? Is it actually working for myself? Yeah, it is, but that comes with lots of put tricky points to it as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit of elasticated relationship. Have you found with your PhD that there's a lot more restraints to it than you realised? Whether it's like selling yourself in a certain way or
2: trying to make it fit within a certain area? Or- yeah, so. Um, I, I, think this is like a very specific perception of the PhD. So I wouldn't want to, like, if someone were to ask me how is getting a PhD, like, um, I wouldn't want to say this is the end all be all, but I, I feel like academia is so publish or perish. Um, and it's really, it's a lot. Like, I feel like, so I, I get to do, I, I have the freedom to do whatever I want in the lab. Like I can go in and do whatever I want as long as I have, um, publications coming out. Um, and that, In itself took a long time to get to where I felt secure enough that my work was going to reach um, or culminate into a publication. But until that certain point, it is really nerve wracking, um, especially knowing that if something doesn't work, it all falls on you. (laughs) Um, So that's one thing that I really uh, think is super challenging to kind of adjust to is that academia mindset of publisher parish, perish. But I, I don't think that's for all, you know, fields or all groups or universities even. Um, I think that's just something that has been a part of my lab ever since I joined. That being said, having a lot of publications is really good for your career. If you want to go into academia or even into R&D, especially if I want to go back into like the biotech field, that's really important. Um, so it's not that it's, um, It's not that I don't like it. It's just something that you, it's a very weird, like abrupt shift in my career and everything that um, definitely was hard to get over that hurdle, I guess. Um, But in general, like going in and knowing that I can, if I really, you know, have to attend a talk or something, I can just leave at any moment and go attend a talk in a completely different department and being surrounded by so many like very, very intelligent people people and just getting to pick their brains about certain things is, is super exciting um and it's definitely something that you don't get really anywhere else this kind of culture of being able to do whatever you want just in the name of knowledge is is really cool um but it, it does have its drawbacks and I'm sure that's the same way in you know industry yeah. I guess yeah
0: exactly but unicorn like thing does not exist
2: (laughs) exactly (laughs) i've been on the the hunt
1: for it i am also curious i think like a a thread in both of your works um i feel like sustainability is almost the word but it's not quite the word like sophia you're very interested in the body and materials that are compatible with the body and emma there's this sense of um using materials that are local to you that are natural that the end the, the end of life does not harm And even in in kind of these smart or stimuli-responsive materials, there's almost this sense that with this innovation comes a natural kind of longevity, or or the the materials that are being selected, there's a they, they they might be more natural, or they might be made to to last a longer time just because they can withstand certain extremes. And so I'm curious how this kind of thread of sustainability of natural material, how does this flow in your work and
0: I always wanted to work on the performance of these type of material, so I'm glad I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so there's always a drive for me. I always wanted to accelerate their performance. Um, and just awareness, I think, as well. Um, so, yeah, so do you, in regards to, like, circularity, how they feed in? Or, so the the reason I try, the, the natural resources um, I use are for re- from regenerative sources, so that re- they basically can grow without any GM. You don't need to give it anything really. So, so that's the main thing. It's there, but it's then sustainably harvesting that and not over, yeah, over harvesting or over, you know, overusing anything. Mm. So then, obviously, then you can have your recycled materials feed into that, and then you'll have a percentage of virgin and recycled materials within your products, I guess. Mm. And then that's how, after a while. As the performance and as the testing of, of your materials that can, can perform better with recycled components, so recycled, um, feedstock. That's what we're pushing for. Mm-hmm. So at the minute, it's, it's a mixture of recycled and non-recycled. And ultimately it would be great if everything was recycled. Of course, copper is like the best one for that. For an example, we're going back onto the metals. But in the plastic world, it's also people are trying to perform that. Um, unfortunately, they don't necessarily go to the root cause of why we still have plastic, but maybe that's a different conversation. But yeah, we're and the idea of like everything being locally sourced is reducing that carbon footprint and then supporting the local communities within that area. So then you've got the idea of reverse designs so that why does everything have to look the same? Why does everything have to come from 52 different countries? Mm-hmm. Does it need to come from that as an example? So it's kind of thinking just beyond that saying, Hey, I'm biodegradable and biodegradable isn't necessarily a good thing. It actually just promotes one use and um, disposal still. So, um, it's trying not necessarily to fall into a tit box trap, but also stimulate conversations and disruptive thinking that would inspire people to want to do, to do better without it being so negative. Am I making sense now, really? But yeah, it's tricky is, and it's very tricky to kind of. Tell people in a very bite sized way, still I think we're still working on that and the accessible information for that without drowning people. Um, because people do want to say, Is it biodegradable? Product- yes or no? And okay, yes, but actually, performance is maybe better, longevity might be better. Maybe, yeah, uh, it's a tricky one. It is
1: definitely.
0: I don't know if it actually answered your question, but yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, you did. Sorry, there's like a motorcyclist in the background. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, no, 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 but you did. I mean, I, I am curious how, like i guess natural materials sustainability etc like how do they take shape in your work and i I think you answered that quite beautifully and i guess sophia um in your kind of work where you're dealing more with the body and with materials that are meant to kind of change like reversibly change how do you kind of see these themes in your work
2: i guess like my main (laughs) my mission if you want to talk in like actual terms um when i got funded from NASA was to basically make soft robots for the purpose of sending them to space That uh, so that they can be robust to impacts and falls, be able to do a bunch of different tasks because they're able to conform and um, change their shape, unlike traditional rigid robots. Um, but the biggest thing is really you cut down um, on costs because they're significantly lighter than rigid robots. So if you think of like a hunk of metal versus, you know, a piece of, silicone polydimethylsiloxane mm-hmm. um, the mass is going to be significantly lower on that PDMS, uh, the silicone and thus you're going to be able to save on cost reduce your carbon footprint even though I don't think they really care that much about that specific component of it um, and that is what you know has caused um, the progression of this work is how do I make these actuators better more robust Um, and honestly more able to perform more than one actuation sequence. Cause the big component of my work right now is that it's only able to actuate once. Mm. Um, and so that in itself is a huge sustainability issue that is my next step in the project. But yeah, I, I, I'm actually not really working too much on products that go into the body right now, but they can, um, be applied topically is more so what I'm doing. Mm. Um, even though everything I do make is biocompatible. If I eat it, it's fine. But yeah, it's not a really sustainable thing. And I think that's one thing that's uh, a huge and prevalent issue in um, soft robotics field, and in general, just research in in universities. It's it's not a sustainable process. Um, And, you know, even projects that require green synthesis, you're obviously creating a lot of waste. Um, So it's a huge issue. And what's actually interesting is there's a conference called RoboSoft, um, which is a conference on soft robotics. It's an IEEE conference in Edinburgh this year. Mm. Um, and the whole theme of it is actually sustainable and, um, kind of like recycling of soft robots. So how can we make this process and make this research field a lot more sustainable? Cause right now, um, on average, we're throwing away, you know, kilos of silicone every single day, I would say. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge issue that we're trying to battle right now in the labs. But I think uh, it's, it's an issue in the, in the research field in general. Yeah.
0: Mm. And Do you think it's an issue because there isn't a need, right? Obviously, there is a need to to work that out because of sustainable reasons. But do you feel it's, like because it's not as exciting as actually getting the actuator? To-
2: I would not say that because I actually think if you were to make actuators out of repurposed Materials. Um, there's actually a lot more chance for if you if you think purely about publish or perish. There's a lot more chance for it to get published because journals are looking for these kinds of things because it is an important topic. The problem is that sometimes when it comes to the performance of a material, um, there's a lot of variability that we found, yeah. um, and with that variability comes a lot of questions, um, which can lead to our work never reaching. A journal article basically i think i know of people actively working on this that are doing really good work on this and hopefully um we'll see more of that out there public access access um but it is something that i think is really challenging to write up in a scientific journal when there's huge standard deviations in materials performance
1: oh that i think that's uh that's it's a really interesting nerve that you just hit um i mean Mm -hmm. i I find like in when working especially with uh things that are natural things that are uh, recycled as you say like that is a huge issue because if you're if you're buying something that's grown or if you're using something that's grown changes in the season changes in the water content etc will change the entire plant and you can't control that and i think um it is both a triumph and I guess the Achilles heel of our current research practices and our current standards for how we wish to achieve progress is that um, we are now able to control so much. And as the, although that's made it possible for us to have the amazing things that we have now, the fatal flaw is that it, we are therefore less adaptable to changing circumstances in many ways. Because of the system that we've created, it's difficult to adapt and it's difficult to kind of... Work through some of these challenges because I don't know. It's you're right. It's how how can we justify that something works if we can't repeat it over and over and over again? Um,
0: I think this is something that Homegrown is trying to promote. Is is that is that Mm -hmm. everything you cannot control, everything Mm -hmm. shouldn't be the same design again and again? And there's a really interesting space that we're looking into of seasonal performance. So, okay, if your materials adjust, okay, okay, what degree? What's the tolerance of their adjusting? And actually, do you can you tell? For some materials, obviously, you can. For some others, resources, let's call them. And actually, maybe that's a benefit. Maybe there's some things that can be produced or made in certain times of the year with certain weather types, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that can work to our benefit. And of course, it's always nice to know. Okay, this works. I need to repeat it again, again, again. But actually. The beautiful thing is about it is as long as you have a tolerance range of your performance, does it need to? Mm. I understand medical wise it does because a life and health risk there that no, that's definite. But actually as long as it still works and performs within a range of you know, a tolerance performance range, does it still need to feel exactly like it did a year ago because mm. that sheep or that whatever that, polysaccharide or wherever it is has had an adjustment because it was picked from xyz and processed at this time and the ph change and blah 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 can we move start to move away by controlling it and creating copious amounts of the same thing again and again and again can we personalize our environment to our surrounding external environment i know it sounds maybe a bit kooky I maybe, but um <laughs> but I understand medical performance and and things maybe automobiles there is a there is a tighter tolerance of course because mm-hmm. it's slightly a bit more of a health and safety risk in regards to yeah all sorts of things but uh, there's a lot of things at home that we work with interact with that don't need that type of tolerance and why why does everything have to perform the same can like a performance change on regionality as well so the materials you use within that region, and then you're in the same process again, but you're just using a different feedstock because that's a local feedstock to that region.
1: Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've thought for the you know past couple of years, you know, being I think RCA is when a lot of these conversations started to happen for for me, and post postgrad now trying to figure out like what to do with time. <laughs> um, a lot of these questions continue to come up, and I I do have this sense that a lot of a lot of what we do with materials is down to choice. Like, you know, does this fit for this in, for this instance or not? You know, and I think now we have even greater axes. We have even more axes to play with. You know, we have like entire material classes that were um, kind of set aside uh, in the like the turn of the what twentieth twentieth century when plastics first emerged. You know, because this kind of research with Quote unquote sustainable materials is not necessarily, you know, completely new. The, some of this research had happened, but it was fully debunked because something cool and exciting uh, took the cake. And so I think there is still value in that. I think there is no such thing as like a truly like evil material per se, you know, save for those that might kill people and kill the environment. But I think for the most part, it's about mindful placement and. I don't know, there's a sense that may, you know, maybe silicone, we don't, ideally we wouldn't use silicone for everything, but if silicone can withstand you know space, then maybe space is where silicone should be. And maybe we should find something that's meant for Earth or we should find something that's meant for the oceans, etc. And maybe that's a way to think about how we select and design and engineer materials. You know what I mean?
0: Exactly, like plastics is this crazy material that just doesn't break down, really. It just hangs out. Yeah, we're making these tiny little toys at McDonald's from it why do we need to do that that's insane you've got this like god-given plastic that's like incredible because the properties of plastic are amazing if you think about it and Mm -hmm. what it does and what we use it for but it's just been overused for so many things that do not need to be plastic
1: yeah Uh, i completely agree maybe we'll have like cool shape-changing toys in 50 years (laughs) 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 yeah Oh
0: but completely agree. With, you know, everything has its place, but we abuse everything. And that's your, yeah. And how do
2: you change that disruptive nature? I think yeah. an issue I face is like the rationale for not necessarily like being wasteful, but for not, you know, having sustainable practices in the lab is that when you're doing this for something that could be critical. Per se, like for for example, um, in the I think a couple years ago or maybe ten years ago, um, there was a soft robotic arm that they sent to to space. They sent out this like little, little gripper, and you know the cost of sending even an orange to space is ridiculous. Like you don't want to mess around with these kinds of uh, things, and so they sent this gripper out, and it didn't. And a gripper is basically a soft gripper that's able to grip anything without. Um, breaking the thing that it's holding so it can pick up a cupcake or it can pick up an orange or whatever um and it didn't work and it's (sighs) like those kinds of things that um make you want to make sure that everything you're doing in the lab um if you do it five times it works the same way because the instant you send it out it's so critical that it works and if it doesn't work then you just wasted thousands, millions, maybe even of dollars. Um, So, yeah, I feel like with like more generalized items, I completely agree. And I think actually I've not seen that much of a push for that in the United States. I think the United Mm -hmm. States has a completely different system compared to um, where you guys are. But um, in the lab sense, it, it is really challenging. And I'm not sure we'll ever get to the point, at least in the next couple of years, where we can have these sustainable practices without um without kind of like compromising the credibility of some of our technologies. That's not to say that's a bad thing, but if we were to, you know, spend tons of money and tons of, you know, rocket fuel sending this out and then it ends up not working, that's kind of a shame in that sense. Am I happy with that? Absolutely not, but (laughs) that's kind of the situation I've been brought into. So it's very mm-hmm. real.
1: Yeah, that's really tough. Mm-hmm. I'm curious in this vein of um, consistency and testing and processing, et cetera. What are some of the tools that you guys use uh, within your practice very consistently that maybe um, our listeners may not be using all the time or may not be hearing about all the time? You know, what what are some of your fun tools?
0: Why not very exciting? So here might have some really exciting ones. <laughs> Scales are my favourite things. Scales, no matter what it is, it's a weight of something. I really love to know the weight of something, even if I'm printing, screen printing. I want. It's very, very intuitive to mm. control that amount, and it doesn't matter that behavior of whatever mass you have changes that's fine but to know how much is a really nice consistent variable that has actually really saved me and it's the most basic thing an unexciting thing I have if that's what you mean in regard to physical tools (laughs) any tools Mm -hmm. um mindfulness that's a tool (laughs) (laughs) meditation to keep myself sane (laughs)
2: yeah um Yeah, so um, obviously like everyone has screwdrivers and toolboxes at home. So a lot of like the roboticists in our lab use those things. But um, for materials, engineers, we have to do a lot of things with like very, very scary pieces of equipment where if you're not formally trained, you'd really I I would advise you don't touch it because I've broken equipments that have costed me. For my lab, thousands and thousands of dollars. I broke a rheometer oh, at one point. Oh, was, oh yeah, tell, tell us what the
1: rheometer is. Tell us what the rheometer. Oh is. yeah,
2: tell it Yeah, I broke it. It was okay. It was a very old Gemini rheometer at CMU in the CCP lab, the colloids. I I got screened at, um, rightfully mm-hmm. so. But I basically like touched the the load, not the load cell, but this like air bearing that's on the top that allows the. Um, the plate to rotate on the top because you have a stationary cup and then you have a plate that's rotating Mm -hmm. and you measure the viscosity of the material using a rheometer. um, And you can vary the rates or the the rotations per minute um, or per second. And I accidentally touched something and triggered some response in the rheometer and it was down for a week. It cost a lot of money and I was almost denied access from the lab. So those kinds of things are like... Yeah. So we we use a lot of equipment that's really, really expensive, really hard to get your hands on. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, a lot of the initial stages of my PhD were writing grants to get new pieces of equipment. Um, So we got another (laughs) (laughs) rheometer, but it was it was two hundred thousand dollars. Like, it's crazy how much money it costs to get these kinds of pieces of equipment. Um, But yeah, so. I, I really like characterizing materials. So I guess um, we we do scanning electron microscopy. We do atomic force microscopy. We also do dynamic mechanical analysis. Um, and that's something I've been doing a lot of. Um, and then in the instance of what I'm doing, we're basically just taking um, a material and putting it between two parallel plates and the top plate, they're both stationary. So it's an isostrain configuration um, and the top plate is measuring a force of a material, um, and so I constrain my material between these two plates, and then I use a temperature ramp because my material responds um, to changes in temperature. And as the temperature ramps, my material expands, and the top plate can measure some kind of force output. Um, but we also have like Instron, you know, as you guys mm-hmm. probably know, you pull a material till it breaks or till it plastically deforms. Yeah. Um, laser cutters, which I just learn how to use and that's fun and 3d printers so we do a lot of fun things but um yeah my favorite one's
0: the humidity one when they test the humidity of the materials that's, uh, the environmental change what, of the humidity.
2: what do you mean like the propeller computer- drift if you do a drift
0: test in in a chamber where the humidity of the environment changes and how the performance of the material changes the conductivity in this case to Do a drift test with the humidity variable.
2: Okay, I'm interested in what piece of equipment you're using because we have a environmental chamber and we have yeah, and be like one of those. Chamber. Yeah, exactly. okay, yeah. and we broke it. Oh, <laughs> um, <and laughs> I have to send it back. So interesting. Okay, I'm very curious to know like what company manufactures that because um, it was really hard to find one in the states.
0: Um, we um, worked I with can... ETS, but okay. This one's a gem. I'll, I'll ask.
2: I can't remember off my head. I think it's German, though. Because when we got that, about it, yeah. <laughs> we were like one of the few people in the United States to get an environmental chamber. Stop it. Um, okay. This latest like, in the UK. Come yeah, to the UK. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm like very intrigued because um, it like hooks up to our instruments, So that's something. Maybe mm. I don't know if that's unique, but like labs from like all around the United States were asking us if we could test our samples and it got to the point where um we literally are writing papers by just characterizing materials in in this environmental chamber because people don't have access to one Um, so I'm just intrigued that you guys have them everywhere (laughs) because we don't have any of them
0: the main tests I have to do is through an environmental chamber for materials is how does it get affected through humidity well temperature is not necessarily like we explained earlier but yeah yeah, meant is a really big thing. Yeah. Interesting. That's really yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Just general drift testing and stuff yeah. like that. Look at that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, <that's hilarious. laughs> oh my gosh. We'll find out if you. That I can't remember.
1: Well, guys, um, before, for my last question, my last trick, I wanted to ask you what your dreams are for the future. Like, what do you... Hope for the future for your work. What do you envision for the future of materials? These two separate questions, but they're interrelated. What do you think? Oh. I know, heavy. heavy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Love it, Dan, you? Love a heavy question, Kat. <laughs> oh, I think for the future, in particular for Homegrown, is to inspire and have accessible information to inspire people within within our community so it's not just a product just to make money it's nothing like that well we have to obviously have a income of some sort to continue our research and and inspiration but it is to create a global impact on the way we use our e-products and I really hope people genuinely want to get involved and that care can really be a physical act of care of how we can very be disruptive with our e-products and reducing that because the moment you start calculating exponential growth into anything it is absolutely terrifying the amount of waste we have especially from electronics Mm. so yeah i think global impact and inspiring our communities is 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 really really key for us whether we want to go through workshops um inspire younger generations i really feel that is where a lot of it is at is generational um and allowing anyone from any background to have access to that information is really really important so even yes we are selling bio-based products but ultimately the bigger picture is education accessible education and i guess um yeah inspiring inspiring others I know it sounds really cliched but yeah
1: <laughs> it's it's cliche. goals. It's good.
0: yeah yeah
2: exactly mm-hmm. yeah exactly so um, I feel like my goals yeah, my- are very different <laughs> um and that I don't have um I'm very like I guess close-minded in the research sense because I have to focus on all right I want to focus on what I have right now um but it's not really like hitting market or anything. So I don't have that much reach as much as you do. Um, but I think the, the main purpose of my work right now is like reconfigurable actuators. Um, so when we think of actuators, especially soft robotic actuators, um, they're usually molded or pre-shaped into one specific shape. And that's all you have um, in that. Is wasteful and it's not as robust as having a material or an actuator that you can shape into a variety of different shapes. And um, so, my work is really taking the benefits of soft actuation and granular media, which is like sand. And if you put sand in a you know plastic bag or something, it can change um, its outer boundaries, I guess, or its volume or final shape um, to take a completely different shape based on where you put you know little. Parts of, or not little parts, but little, little parts of force. I guess, like if you mm-hmm. put force on one specific area of your bag, you're going to change the shape of your overall bag of sand, and that's kind of what we're doing with our actuators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when we want to send a robot to space, say, um, we don't want to send 18 actuators that are all pre-shaped to a specific shape. We want to send one actuator that can perform all different modes of actuation. Um, and in turn, I think that just increases the robustness of our actuator. It makes it you know, rapidly reconfigurable, um, and it allows for actuation with multiple bulk properties. Um, mm-hmm. So I can change the bulk properties of this actuator um, just based on the rearrangement um, of our particles, because each of our actuators is a discrete particle. Um, so that's my main goal. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to take a bit of time just because... Um, the technology itself is not as robust, mm-hmm. um, but I think once we we you know start to really delve into the intersection between granular media and soft actuation, we can really introduce this paradigm shift in how we think of soft actuators and how we manufacture soft actuators, so that we can reduce um, reduce waste and make things um, reconfigurable. That's like my number one term. It's just more reconfigurability. <laughs> so
1: yeah. That's a that's, that's a key, long-term that's a goal, yeah. Yeah, that's it long-term is.
2: impact. That is definitely yeah. that's like huge, well, huge. Hopefully, I finish there. in like three years because <laughs> I need to find a job. Like, I, I don't have you know all 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 my life to be here. um But yeah, eventually, at least in my PhD portion, and then I'll probably move back to biotech or something. But
1: no worries, girl. We'll be here waving on the outside. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> hey, let's get your environmental let's chamber. Get you. <laughs> environmental chamber. <laughs> <laughs> so, thing is, like,
1: oh yes, go ahead,
2: breeze. It's it's like a thousand pounds, and God. I have to ship it back. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do this, but yeah, I'd be interested to know where you where you source yours because I these that's an interesting company.
1: <laughs> fair enough Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so guys um as we kind of wrap up where i guess first where can people learn more about um the kind of work that you do maybe not specific projects because i know there's a lot of stuff that's in the process but where can people learn more about your fields or things that you find interesting and then where can they connect with you
0: who wants to go fast <laughs> Sorry, go <fine>. <laughs> i don't mind <laughs> go ahead um I think what we have in the UK is the Ella MacArthur Foundation I think I probably said that wrong actually um I mean it's just a really great access information to just circularity and they're a really great platform for education um so that's not necessarily material specific it does include materials but um yeah that's a really really um fantastic platform and of course there's this there's such a big space out there and the bio inspired textile research group is amazing and they're looking very you know looking at environmental stimuli textiles since what we mentioned earlier um sophia and yeah they're a fantastic group big circle studio in johannesburg is a really really great space they've just done a collaboration with Terium. um and they're yeah again using local materials and how can you optimize that waste in particular or local resources and then just for me gosh um i should probably it, but yeah i've just got through an amalgamation of a portfolio website so yeah it's emma com. i think i am now <laughs>
1: <So
0: yeah. laughs> i should really know off by heart <laughs>
1: <laughs> i will link
0: um on, but yes
1: yes yes fantastic um, and
0: then yeah instagram and all that in yeah EmmaHarriet harriet underscore cool
2: cool um Yeah, you can check. So, I think my lab does a lot of cool things. Um, so, it's Professor Kramer particularly or the website I think is literally just the fabricatory. Instead of laboratory, you just put F. So, it's a fabrication laboratory.com. Mm. Um, there's a lot of cool work there. My work will be published soon. So, if you want to see my work, um, it'll probably pop up in Google, Google Scholar in the next couple of months um yeah. and then yeah LinkedIn is I mean I don't check it often but if you want to find me I'm on LinkedIn yeah I don't have a website good <laughs>
0: yeah oh guys oh I'm dot com, dot dot com, com. I've just double checked hilarious <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do
0: you know when you start typing it does it for you and you're like oh I didn't need to actually remember my entire URL. <laughs> but yes LinkedIn great space yeah. Perfect.
1: Yes. May- build up your connections, people. Um, guys, thank you again so much for your time. Um, it has been so lovely speaking with you about all things materials. Um, to our listeners, thank you for joining us today and tune in for some more materials, people, in the next installment. It's been, I'm Catherine. It's been real. Goodbye. Bye.
0: information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to
2: hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify